we'll get started in three, two, one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 30th episode of the Atlas Society Asks. I am Jennifer Grossman. I'm CEO of the Atlas Society, which is the leading nonprofit organization introducing young people to the magnificent literature and ideas of Ayn Rand. Uh, today, we are joined by my friend, Jackie Deason. Before I even get into introducing Jackie, I want to remind all of you to please, whether you are joining us on Zoom or on YouTube, go ahead, type in your questions. I would love to get to as many of them as possible. So Jackie is someone I have actually wanted to get on this show uh, since actually the since we began back in March. Uh, and little did I know that this would be the topic that we would be talking among, about among others, uh, election integrity, because of course, Jackie Deason is a senior fellow at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. She hosts the Jackie Daily Show, a podcast and blaze radio program that covers all things energy, including policy, the impact of green energy, and the oil industry. A member of the Federalist Society for the past couple of decades, Jackie worked on many issues in her seven-year stint uh, at, as counsel at the U.S. House of Representatives. One of those issues was election integrity. So uh, when after November 3rd, she and many in uh, our nation became concerned about reports of election irregularities uh, in a few specific counties, despite having a very full plate of responsibilities in Dallas, uh, including being a newlywed, she volunteered her services uh, to the Trump campaign to help lend her expertise. And she has pretty much been on the road ever since. Uh, we are going to get, we don't bury the lead as they say in journalism. So yes, we are going to talk about one of the most surprising things that she helped to unearth, which was the surveillance video from the State Farm Arena in Atlanta, Georgia of what happened after uh, the counting had been halted for that night. So we are going to get to that. But first, Jackie, welcome again. Thank you very, very much for joining us. Thank you so much. Honored to be with you. So Jackie, before we get into some of these hot topics, um, you have such a fascinating background. Would you share with us a little bit of the Jackie Deason story? You descend from a long line of energy workers, including roughnecks, railroaders, uh, coal miners, nuclear energy specialists. So tell us a bit about your beginnings and what inspired you to pursue both energy and uh, election integrity as areas of speciality? Well, strangely, I really didn't get interested in energy despite it being my family's business um, until after I went to Capitol Hill. And there we were doing all of this counterterrorism investigation, specifically the funding of terrorism. And of course you find out it all goes back to petrostates in the Middle East, oil countries, <clears throat> excuse me, countries that produce oil and natural gas basically um, is the, the source of the font of the funding. And so I began thinking about how do we unravel 
our relationships with these countries in a way that we could actually tackle the problem. So it started there. And then I began investing about 2000 hours or so studying the history of oil, which is really the history of the world over the past 200 years. I mean, nearly every war has some way or another that oil is implicated in the motives or the outcome of the war. So with that, I just decided that the American shale revolution was one of the best things that could ever happen to the country. And it was really upsetting me that it was not being messaged appropriately as the, the geopolitical salvation it was for us. So I just decided I had to tell the world and no one was holding the green movement accountable for its attack on US energy independence and security. So someone had to do it and I decided that would be me. So I founded my show in 2014 and it's still going. Well, that, that's, that's spectacular. That has been uh, an interest of uh, ours at the Atlas Society. We recently had on as a guest, Michael Schellenberger, author of Apocalypse Never, uh, which was also the subject of our book club, which is uh, we've got dozens of students from um, around the country and around the world. Um, you are reading an interesting book as well. Uh, we just were, we were chatting about it right before we went live. Um, maybe that would be a subject for the book club as well. Right, so I'm just now picking up the Indispensable Electoral College, How the Founders' Plan Saves Our Country from Mob Rule. This is by Tara Ross, who also is a Texan. Um, and last I checked, she was not big on Donald Trump. This is not a book that just came out to support Trump's reelect. This is a book that goes back. I think her first edition goes back maybe years before Trump. And she's basically taken up the Electoral College probably after the 2000 election uh, as an interest. So understanding, is this a good idea? Why do we have this? And so she concludes, and she's a, she's a huge advocate that's in demand around the world to explain this to, you know, I mean, foreigners don't understand our electoral college, Americans don't understand it really. She does a great job of explaining why we have this institution and why it's really capable of handling just about any situation. And we're about to see, I think, um, how it works, not only because you just watched what happened in um, December 14 when the college acted, but also we have now seven states that have sent two slates of electors, Democrat and Republican or Biden and Trump. So literally they will, they send both sets of votes to the house. That's very unusual. It's not unprecedented, but it's nearly unprecedented. Certainly the way in the circumstances that we have it now, um, people disagree dramatically on what it means what can or should happen because of this. And uh, I've talked to so many experts, read so many law review articles and books. I can't find any two people who will agree on exactly what the possibilities are and what can happen in a situation like this. Um, it's, it's really uncharted territory almost, but certainly our constitution and statutes give us a roadmap We've just never been down the road yet. So January could be really interesting. I don't know. We, I, I can't tell you that I know what's gonna happen. Well, um, we 
are going to have a lot of questions from our audience nonetheless. So I want to, again, encourage those of you who have joined us uh, on the Zoom or are watching us on YouTube to please uh, take advantage of this wonderful opportunity to ask questions of Jackie Deason, who has been so close to what has been going on. Um, so Jackie, you know, you and your husband uh, are also great philanthropists. Uh, we met just a couple of days ago at a fundraising event for Turning Point at Mar-a-Lago. Um, we've uh, seen each other at, at the stand together. Between philanthropy, your show on the Blaze Network, um, being a new bride, what could possibly have prompted you in the midst of vicious lockdowns, no less, to trade in uh, your very busy, um, relatively comfortable life for the almost masochistic punishment <laughs> of challenging election results? Because I've, I've been there as well. So what were you thinking? I cannot stand the feeling of um, feeling like I have to sit on my hands and watch Rome burn. I can't stand it. So I just called my friends who are in the campaign or at the RNC or on the legal team and just said, hey, how can I help? I could see they needed help. And they said, well, you know, first let's try Arizona. So I went out there for a while uh, and that was a, a learning experience for sure. And then went to Georgia, which ended up being about a three week deployment. <laughs> and still I'm, I'm involved. Um, first of all, I didn't know exactly that it would be quite as intense as it was or as, as long and drawn out as it was. Um, but I would have done the same thing. I just feel like I'm, I'm so familiar with this issue of election integrity and vote fraud. And I've been really immersed in it for 15 years. And finally, the rest of the country sees what I've seen. This is not a new problem, none of it. I mean, whether it's the, um, you know, the dead people voting, the felons voting, the out-of-state voters, people voting in two states, uh, or it's the machines. None of it's new. The Dominion machine problem is not new. We're just focusing on it right now. And so really I saw it about two days after the election, maybe, or four days. I finally, for the first time, saw the problem as a blessing in disguise. Because as much as I have not enjoyed um, the, the uncertainty and the scrutiny um, of motives for people like me who just want to make sure it's an honest process. There's a lot of downside to what's happened. The truth is for the first time, Americans have their eyes wide open. For the first time, a majority of us see the problem and want it fixed. So we have to get the truth out there. What's going on in the courts and um, in terms of the hearings uh, with the legislatures and the PR is more than just an effort to figure out who's the president, which is important enough, but it's also an effort to hold accountable the people who have really tried to destroy the Republic with fraud, misrepresentation, cheating, and also to get the reforms that we have to have in the states going forward. This is totally fixable. It was totally preventable, it's totally fixable. It's gonna take a lot of work but the path ahead for that is clear. I mean, we know what we have to do. So, you know, simple things like putting some integrity into the system by eliminating mail-in ballots, 
reestablishing things like signature verification for absentee ballots, voter ID everywhere, uh, maybe even a thumbprint like they have in other countries. Like our, our country is actually well known as being one of the worst when it comes to election integrity. There's no excuse. We have to fix it at the state level and we will. So I'm feeling good about that. I think everything we're going through right now is necessary to make sure that happens. Should have happened 15 years ago, but it'll happen now. So it's still very much necessary. We have to go through this. So let's get to it. Um, tell us exactly what is on the tape uh, from the State Farm Arena in Fulton County, Georgia that has people so concerned and tell us a little bit, tell us what's on the tape. Tell us also how you guys got that tape. That, that's a very interesting part of the story. Yeah, so essentially what happened is that um, during the election and after the election, there were so many calls that came into the fraud hotline and uh, to Republican headquarters. And essentially we had two Republican poll watchers at State Farm Arena, which is Atlanta. So it's the biggest center or you know, um, unit, the county, Fulton County, they were there and they were you know, reporting on election night as early as the third, that they were told around 10 o'clock that counting would stop at State Farm Arena, which is where they're counting absentee ballots and military ballots, and that they would resume again at 8.30 in the morning. So with that, most of the workers picked up and left when they finished what they were working on our observers left, the press left, and before they left, they asked the spokesperson for the Board of Elections, why are we stopping? What's the status of these ballots? How many have we counted? How many are left? Why is this happening? So both our observers asked three times and the press asked two, which is widely reported. They couldn't get a straight answer, but they didn't have the right to stay. The way the law works is, unfortunately, or for better or worse, they don't get to just stand guard over the ballots all night. When the officials say, we're stopping, they have to leave. That's the way it is. So they left. Um, then they learn after midnight, closer to 1 a.m., from a, a person who tipped them from the news media that in fact, counting had continued after they had left. So when they learned this, they ran back down to State Farm Arena. It's now about 1.45 in the morning. They had to argue with the security guard to get in, but they went past him. And sure enough, they get up there and someone says, oh yeah, everyone just left five minutes ago. Completely counter to what they had been told, completely counter to what had been reported by ABC, the CBS affiliate, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and others who had been there with them observing. So this made no sense. They immediately then went to the Georgia GOP. They swore out affidavits explaining what had happened. So we have those affidavits, of course, the legal team. Again, I'm not a lawyer for the case or for Donald Trump. I'm just a volunteer in this case, although I am a lawyer. Um, but we take those affidavits and we said, okay, let's, let's get more um, information to support the case. So they subpoenaed the videotapes at State Farm Arena. Because you know, State Farm Arena is like a place where huge events are held, right? Um, it's a very highly frequented venue. For, for legal purposes, of course, they have videotapes every, or video cameras everywhere. So sure enough, the affidavits matched up perfectly with the video. We could see it was correct. 
uh, there was all this conflicting information coming out from the Board of Elections uh, officials and the Secretary of State. So we presented the video to the Georgia Senate Committee, where I was that day. Um, you can see all of this, by the way, on an article that Molly Hemingway did that was published in The Federalist and Real Clear Politics. She does a great job of fact-checking the fact-checkers because we put this video out there and literally, I'm just narrating precisely what you're seeing in these four frames because if you didn't have someone narrating, it would be very difficult to make sense of what you're seeing. It's four different frames of the same room, four different angles. It looks like four different rooms, but in fact, it's not. So really, I mean, I didn't say people here committed a crime. I just said, let's take a look at what happened. You know, at eight o'clock this, at 10 o'clock that, at 10.30 this, and people can see with their own eyes that for some reason, the majority of the people present get up and leave at about 10.30. And yet the Secretary of State was saying, no one was ever told to leave. No one was forced to leave. In fact, we had a monitor there the whole time. All of that was false. All of it was false. A simple Google search would have proven to the fact checkers, uh, they didn't even Google their own you know, information. They called the Secretary of State and essentially ask him and his staff to fact check themselves, to grade themselves. How did you do? Was there any problem with this election? Because look, if the people of Georgia had their votes stolen, on whose watch did that happen? Who's responsible for that? So should we be surprised that there's a lot of hand waving and they want to say nothing to see here? and that they're contradicting themselves in the press. I'm not surprised. Um, the Secretary of State entered into a settlement agreement with the Democrat Party and Stacey Abrams back in April, which loosened the standards for how you evaluate the signatures on absentee ballots. Okay. That was in direct contravention of a Georgia statute. He can't do that. That's illegal. It should have been stopped right there. So that's one thing we're arguing in the election contest or that, that Donald Trump is arguing, that President Trump is arguing. Just like when you send your, the public away and the Republican observers away and the press away, you can't then start counting votes again, which is exactly what they did in the State Farm Arena video until about one in the morning. You can't do that for two reasons. There's a statute that says you will do all proceedings at the tabulation center in public view. That means Republican observers have the right to be there and to object. The press has the right to be there. The public has the right to be there. Second thing, if you're going to start counting, again, you have to give due notice to the press. And in fact, the election officials have to give notice every single day that they're counting, that they're counting again so that people know so they can be there and observe. They broke those two laws right off the bat, right off the bat, I mean, assuming that those ballots were perfectly fine and legitimate and real. We're, not, we're certainly not sure of that and have reason to believe otherwise. We have lots of questions that need to be answered. Uh, you, you saw the vote count skyrocket for Joe Biden overnight at, oh, about the exact time they left State Farm Arena, right about then. But there also were allegations of like pristine ballots. So in other words, our observers, again, we have lots and lots of affidavits, said, hey, I've been doing this for 20 years. For some reason, there were a lot of absentee ballots that weren't even creased. There, were, there weren't even creased. How were they mailed in 
with no creases to be put into the envelope. How's that possible? We don't think that's possible. And then there were other people who said there was just Biden vote after Biden vote after Biden vote, you know, 500 in a row. We don't believe that. So there are all kinds of things I could walk you through. Um, now it's, it's public. I think you can find it online because we want the people, we want all of America to see the affidavits from these people who are very brave. I mean, first of all, coming forward, putting their name on the dotted line under penalty of perjury. I mean, they could go to jail, right? If they're not telling the truth. And these brave people, and some of them are just volunteers, like my grandmother who works the polls. You know, they're not hotshot lawyers who can come in and, and just throw their weight around. <clears throat> these are just patriots, the people who love their country, who are telling the truth. And so that's what we showed on the video. Um, you know, the, the, I, I really feel like the legislators were very blown away by what they saw. Anyone can see that's wrong. Anyone can see that should never happen. And then for the fact checkers, so-called fact checkers, to come out and try to say, don't believe your lying eyes. There's nothing to see here. This is totally normal. It doesn't pass the lap test. People don't believe it. And then the Washington Post attacked Fox News for covering the story. Look, the video speaks for itself. I don't know what those ballots had on them. I don't know if they were all marked for, for Joe Biden or not, but it's possible because there was no one there to watch. How do we know that wasn't the case? Do you know that now <clears throat> it's being reported that someone ran the math on how many people voted for Joe Biden and the Democrat Senate candidate, Mr. Ossoff, versus how many people voted for Trump and also uh, Purdue, the Republican Senate candidate. Typically, those will track very closely. People who vote Republican for president will vote Republican also for the Senate and vice versa. But in Georgia, somehow, somehow, there were 818 votes um, separating Purdue and Trump among Republican voters. There were 96,000 separating Biden and Ossoff among Democrats. That's 117 times more of a vote margin between the top of the ticket and the next person down. Does that make any sense? I mean, there, there's so much, I, I, we only have so much time today, I know that. There's so much I could share with you to raise questions about this election. Um, nobody knows who won Georgia. I don't believe anyone knows who won the state of Georgia. And until there's greater investigation, we may never know. We may never find out. But right now, as you might know, there is a, um, a signature verification effort across all 159 counties ongoing. And there's also a live election contest. Our case is still in the courts and undetermined. So we don't know yet how that turns out. Great. We have uh, a bunch of questions here from the audience. I'm not going to be able to get to every single one of them, uh, but Philip Coates asks about the water leak in Atlanta. What was, what was that all about? So <laughs> I spent literally hours trying to investigate this and still the facts are conflicting. So for example, um, what many of the press reported and what the Secretary of State said is that there was a water break or leak in the morning, like way early in the morning of election day, which then delayed them from starting the counting. Okay, and it literally from the records it shows, yeah, it was like some leaky urinal and it took some repairman half an hour to fix it. 
But for some reason, they delayed starting for a few hours. And I believe, and I can't prove this, okay, but I believe that was the pretense for them saying, oh, we can't finish tonight. Look, we can't get anything done tonight. We're just going to have to go to tomorrow because we had this leak this morning. Okay, but I can't prove to you that's the reason why they did it. I'm reading in a motive. Let me be clear. I do not speak on behalf of the Trump campaign. Okay, so I can't prove this right now. I will also tell you there were other reports from other news outlets that, in fact, the leak was in the evening. So I saw um, posted online a CNN report, I believe it was, and they're, they're clearly at an election party. It looks to me like people are gathered together the evening of election night. That's sure what it looks like to me at the Democrat party. And they're talking about the fact that, hey, there's some kind of delay right now over at State Farm Arena. Apparently there's a water main break and we can't get the, the count right now. So I'm thinking that probably there's more than one report of a, of a water break. And, and the reports were conflicting. Like, is this a water main break? Is this a pipe? They made it sound so serious when in fact it was just a urinal. According to, I believe it was the chief investigative officer at the secretary of state's office who said that. Um, and again, that would square with the half hour repair. It was no big deal. Shouldn't have even been a press item. Should not have even delayed anything. It had no impact on the, the, the room, which you can see in the video we released. Everyone can see that with their own eyes. So I, I think it's, I see no good excuse for why it excuses anything, frankly. Right, so I mean, in that video, as you mentioned, uh, you can see there's a certain time when a whole bunch of people leave the room. Uh, you have affidavits from people saying that they were asked to leave the room, that counting was going to be stopped. Uh, so that also seems to be an interference with, uh, with official observers in the rooms where ballots were being counted. Um, you uh, were involved in Arizona, you uh, were involved in Georgia, you're clearly following uh, this. Was this also a problem? Was, was this a problem beyond what happened that evening uh, during other areas in Georgia? Yes, in, in county after county, during early voting, election day, the recounts in Georgia, also in Arizona, and you saw the, the press reports from Pennsylvania um, and, and uh, Michigan. I mean, it's very clear that there was, to me, to me, this is coordinated. I don't believe that organically, the officials in all four states, county after county, just decided to be so hostile to Republican observers. So I'll tell you, even if our observers had been there at midnight at State Farm Arena, they couldn't have seen if all of those ballots were marked for Biden because they were kept so far away, between 40 and 100 feet away, our affidavits say, so that you know, no one with normal eyesight could possibly know what was going on. That's wrong. That's totally wrong. Other states don't do it that way. Their observers actually can meaningfully observe what's going on, which is how it should be. At State Farm Arena, for example, they had a room that had a, it's hard to explain, but it was a wall that was basically curved. So our observers are standing back here. There's a curved wall. The scanners are behind the curve. They didn't even know the scanners existed or were even there until they learned it from one of the people who worked there because they couldn't see them all day long. So throughout the process, there was never 
meaningful observation, the Secretary of State should have put a stop to that. And I know for a fact that there were individuals who went to people who work for the Secretary of State, who are supposed to be the enforcers to say, excuse me, I'm so glad you're here. Over here, this is going on, that's going on. No one can observe. They don't have two people duplicating ballots or whatever the, the objection was, and there were so many. And they would do nothing. They would do nothing. So, you know, I mean, maybe they would speak up and say, oh, you know, please don't do that. And then they'd walk away and it's happening again. This, this, this was an ongoing complaint for all of early voting, which is quite a long time. So most of the time, they would tolerate, for example, our affidavits say, our observers were threatened with law enforcement. If they so much as tried to get within 10 foot to see what was happening or ask a question, multiple of them through county after county were threatened with, you know, we're gonna call the law, we're gonna call the sheriff on you. And they were bullied. To which I said, okay, why didn't we train our people better, right? If, if I were there and they told me they were gonna call the law on me, I'd say, you know what, I'll beat you to it. You just stand right there and I'll call the police myself. And you're going to let me do what the statute says I am empowered to do. I will do it. But obviously not everybody's a lawyer trained to push back on people. And, so, and not everyone was, was an event or an incident. So, I mean, we were debating, like, would it have been a good thing if people did get arrested? Just like, just like a peaceful protester, right? Um, I don't know. I mean, no one, no one was advised to do that. But I do think we should be advised to look people in the eye and say, I know what the law is. I know what's right and what's wrong. I, I invite you, please do contact law enforcement and let's work this out. Um, because I, I just, I saw that and it makes me so angry because some of these people even came from out of state to volunteer to help. And this is how they're treated. Um, so again, I, I could wear you out with examples, but there are, there are way too many. It was in all the states that I know about that I looked into so I think it's, I think it's orchestrated. I don't think it's organic. I don't see how it could be. People aren't that nasty. So are people allowed to, you know, use their phones to use their phones to document what? Because that, to me, it seems that um, so so much transparency has come whether it's criminal uh, justice or arrests or police you know, brutality, it's coming from people being able to videotape what's going on. Um, could people use their phones or are, are there ways to incorporate some technology, surveillance technology into making sure that, hey, we're all looking at the same thing right now? So generally no. And part of the reason I think is that in Georgia, for example, and other states, um, they want the voter on election day or during early voting to feel like what they're doing is private. They don't mm -hmm. want them to feel like they're being filmed while they're filling out a ballot or any chance that you would actually film the, the choices on the ballot. So I understand that part. Um, but even when there are no voters or ballots involved that would be identifiable, so for example, in a recount, you know, there are no voters present during the recount. Also, if you see the ballot, there's not a voter's name on the ballot. You would not be able to connect the voter to the ballot, generally speaking. I mean, there's this election and there's a barcode uh, to identify who the voter is. But, you know, after it's separated from the absentee ballot with a signature, you would not be able to see who that is. So I think that, you know, personally, 
again, this is just me talking uh, wish list for reform. I think it would be great if once those ballots are separated from the voter, we would actually, I would live stream it. Let's yeah. show people what's going on. If it's supposed to be done in public view, as the Georgia statute says, and that would be the same across many states, maybe all of them, I don't know. Um, why not let the public watch? I, I don't Absolutely. see the word there because it's totally confidential. Yeah, because it, this just seemed um, very disorganized, very chaotic. Part of that is that we do have different laws, different states, different standards. But, um, but you know, you were talking about people not being prepared that in so many of these sworn testimonies that were presented, whether in a legislative um, arena or wherever people could gather to say, hey, I've, th th this is my testimony. I've uh, signed this under oath. I understand I'll be liable for legal penalties if, if this is challenged. So many people said, well, they, they told me to leave. They told me I had to sit here, that I, they threatened me uh, and they, they didn't know what to do. They, they'd leave, they'd call you know, this one, they'd call that one, they'd call a lawyer, but it just, um, they lost a lot of time and, and were not able to do what they had signed up to do because of, of this interference. No, that's right. So and, yeah, agreed. Could you talk, Jackie, a little bit about uh, the Electoral College? How did the Electoral College vote impact um, the effort to expose uh, and make right, you know, the election irregularities uh, and even potential illegalities? What is the latest on the lawsuit in Georgia? So there were multiple lawsuits in Georgia, and the impact that the Electoral College vote had is that some of them were um, basically negatively impacted because the judge used the electoral college vote as an excuse to dismiss the suit, to say, well, it's all going to be moot anyway. You know, you can't get this figured out before the December 14 deadline. So sorry, time is up and is run on you. Um, there's a strong counter argument that I subscribe to that you'll find in the literature and among experts who understand this, this law, which is that First of all, the December 14 date, which, which changes by the way, uh, from you know, election to election, because it's not actually a date, it's you know, the second Wednesday, I think in December, um, or maybe the fourth Wednesday after the election. Anyway, the point is it's arbitrary. Okay, they created a statute and they put it in there as a date by which they want the states to cast their votes. That's great if there's no contest. That's great if we all agree who won. Here's the problem. We have a situation now where certainly in Georgia and elsewhere, we don't have a you know, final determination on the merits in court as to who won the election. So what do you do in a situation like that? Should, so the, the questions came all along in December, should the legislature have to just decide something? Should they have to do hearings and then just decide since we can't seem to figure it out? Um, basically the constitution, as you know, trumps statute. So the statute that sets out the December 8 and 14 uh, deadline, at least this election, is really subordinate to the constitution. There's an argument that because the states have plenary power, the, the legislature has plenary power to decide the outcome of an election, and they would probably like the benefit of the courts having taken evidence, heard witnesses, looked at affidavits, 
and come to a conclusion after doing the fact finding that you would normally have in the adversarial process, they should probably have the benefit of that playing out all the way. Why should we have to be able to, you know, get all these affidavits, which let me tell you, takes a long time. It takes so long. I was personally involved in this. These people were demanding evidence like three days after the election. It doesn't work like that. You can't speak to the thousands or tens of thousands of people who contact your fraud hotline, make sure they're real, make sure they have real claims, make sure the claims are relevant to what you're doing and get those in an affidavit with the wet signature. This takes a while. It takes a while to subpoena videotapes and everything else. You can't just do this overnight, even with um, an expedited process, which would typically be what an election process would be. I mean, election contests are different. Courts do understand you need to speed them up, but expecting the state to be able to work this out by December 14 is unreasonable, uh, many have argued. And so since the constitution makes clear the state legislatures have this prerogative, do they have to act by the date that a federal statute says? Because Congress doesn't get to decide that. So we didn't even have that law, right? Until uh, what, the 1880s? So for all those years, the Republic, you know, toddled along just fine without Congress telling the states by what day they're going to have a decision about, um, you know, how their, their electoral votes will be cast. So in this situation, recognizing the problem, we now have seven states that have sent two slates of electors. So both the Trump electors and the Biden electors voted in those states. Those have been transmitted to Washington. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I'm not real sure what's going to happen there. And, and there are a number of people who could step in and have something to say about how we do or do not count a situation where we have dueling electors. Uh, you know, as I said, there, was a, there is a precedent for this going back to the 1880s, which is why we now have the statute that tries to work this out. But there, again, you had three states that sent two sets of electors. And in the end, uh, Rutherford B. Hayes is the president and they extract a concession from him that he'll end reconstruction. Okay, I don't know about you, that doesn't seem like a constitutional or principled outcome. Like, okay, we will we'll let the votes go this way as long as you promise to do this or that. I have no idea how that precedent will bear on this year um, or you know January. I don't know, but you know Mike Pence could decide to recognize electors from one group or the other or throw them out completely. I suppose um, you know the the House clearly is run by. Nancy Pelosi, by a thin margin, a thin margin that she wasn't expecting. Um, unfortunately, the House has a lot of power when it comes to um, an objection that would be raised and will be raised. You should expect to see, I think, multiple members of the House objecting to this election. You'll see some senators, I suspect, objecting to the election. They can do that whether or not we have a situation that would that would trigger the 12th Amendment, right? So. Um, the 12th Amendment would be implicated where you have a situation where neither candidate has 270 votes or a majority of the Electoral College vote. Some people say uh, this amendment is only triggered where you have three sets of electors for three different candidates, as you did in 1800. I won't bore you with it, but we have history to suggest that perhaps it would not be triggered in a Biden-Trump situation. There would have to be a third party. Other people say that's not the case. 
that you can object regardless of the situation, that you can kick it over to the house regardless. So as I said, I, I, I've talked to a lot of really, really smart people who are recognized nationally in this area to try to work this out and uh, also the litigators involved. And I can't seem to get any two people to agree about what can or should happen here. So um, I, I will be as surprised as anyone to see what happens, if anything, um, in January. Well, uh, that certainly uh, makes, it, makes it interesting. Uh, we have an interesting question here from Mark Shoup. He asks, does Jackie have any educated guesses who orchestrated this and how it was organized? I think you, you mentioned you didn't think that this was happening in exactly the same way in multiple different states. So any educated guesses? Well, I would say whoever they are, they're probably Democrat sympathizers uh, since it all worked out in their favor. So I, I would be um, comfortable saying that some people who are operatives in that party um, probably had some leadership roles. If there's, if we find nefarious activity, I won't believe that it was just the Democrat grandmothers who happened to volunteer to be poll workers at those places who are responsible for orchestrating this. I think it's very well funded um, by people who know what they're doing and people who understand the law, basically, to just be clear, um, once fraud is committed, it's very hard to do anything about it. It doesn't matter what the proof is. It doesn't matter who your witnesses are. It doesn't matter if your party holds the state legislature or the secretary of state's office or the governor's office or the department of justice. Nobody wants to be the person to go in there and overturn an election, even if they do believe there's fraud. Because you know, especially after this summer, Right after we, we've seen the mob, and there are people who are concerned about you know, a federal judge is asking himself, will my house be burned down? Will my kids be attacked? Will I be attacked? If I'm the person who says, well, yes, actually, President Trump has made the necessary showing here, um, and we can no longer permit this election to be certified. So um, people, who, people who understand at that level the way the law works and the fact that, you know, we're not going to have a normal, this is not a law school exam where you just put down the best arguments and then hopefully the strongest one wins and that's the end of it. It's not like that at all, it's political. So I think it's highly sophisticated folks. Um, as far as, it would be difficult to break down into their different component parts, the types of fraud and what kind of people would be involved in that. So there's like retail fraud, um, what I was talking about earlier. Yeah, ballot stuffing or dead people voting, things like this that are pled in the, the Trump um, contest in, in Georgia, for example, is retail fraud. So in those cases, that's normally like big city machine politics. They're really old fashioned kind of fraud um, and you don't need a lot of it, right? People are saying there's no evidence of widespread fraud. Well, you don't need that. I mean, if you look at Georgia, Arizona and Wisconsin, those states, could flip the electoral college to Trump, right? And there were only 44,000 votes in those states combined that were the difference, that were the margin that he would have to overcome. So you don't need widespread fraud. Um, if you're talking about something just, like- Just to repeat that, just so that was, you said 44,000 votes combined in which states? And that's in Wisconsin, Georgia, and Arizona. So all three 44, combined. 
Yeah. Okay. And then in Georgia, we're talking about. It's between 10, between 10 and 12,000. 10, 10 and 12,000. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So for the, for the margin there, right, we only had to show, we showed about 5,000 people who were registered out of state who voted in Georgia under Georgia law. That is, yeah, this is black letter law. You are not eligible to vote. If you're registered somewhere else, you don't vote here. So there goes 5,000 votes right away. About 2,500 felons, about 30,000 people who jumped counties. So those are illegal votes. When you jump counties in, in Georgia, you have to register in the new county. So unless you, if you don't register there, then you're not registered to vote anymore. So there are things like this, you know, we have, we only have to show that we have those types of votes happening beyond the margin of victory. So under Georgia law, you don't have to show how those people voted. Of those 5,000 who voted for Madison mm -hmm. State, we don't have to show that they all voted for Biden. That's not required. Yeah, so, and I think that's true in a lot of states actually, but certainly in Georgia. So anyway, Trump has definitely made the showing. Assuming he can get a hearing and get his day in court and have his experts prove up those numbers, then that's it. He, he's done what he has to do under the law to request a new election, that's the, that's the remedy, or get a decertification of the election that, we just, that was just certified by the Secretary of State. Basically, you would uncertify it for Biden. All right, we've got about 10 or 15 more minutes. Time has just completely flown by. So we do still have some, some time for questions, guys. So uh, please go ahead and type them on into the Zoom chat or into uh, the YouTube live stream. Um, this is an interesting question from Jimbo on YouTube, uh, who was asking as a recently retired um, financial services industry uh, person, he has a lot of clients establishing trusts offshore to avoid judicial risk, uh, judges doing whatever they want. So his question, probably more comprehensible to you as a lawyer than to me, is about um, how to institute some form of judicial accountability for judges that invent law. That's a tough one. Um, <laughs> that, is the, that is the million dollar question passed around the House of Representatives when I was working there because people wanted to impeach judges often. And um, as you know, that is the official check and balance that we have against the judiciary. It's almost never used, never. I mean, especially for a decision, right? So if a judge commits a crime, uh, or uh, does something like, you know, viciously attacks, uh, sexually harasses an employee or something like that, you have a much better chance of impeaching that judge than if that judge does something that's clearly unconstitutional, that is clearly counter to the rule of law. And so it's a tough problem because you don't want to just impeach judges because you, because the party in power that has the votes to do it disagrees with that judge's decisions. So, because, it's, you know, obviously it's super common you take any constitutional issue, run it to the U.S. Supreme Court, rarely do you get a unanimous decision. I mean, for the, for the big decisions that you and I follow in the press, they're usually divided. So you have a situation where half the country thinks it's wrongly decided, right, if you have a split court. Um, so I don't know a good answer for that. No one has figured out a great answer for that. Obviously, you do a better job of appointing judges on the front end, which is 
sort of what has grown up in Washington, right? After what happened with Souter, Kennedy, O'Connor, Roberts, so many disappointments really for, at least for the, the conservative side. <clears throat> so people got serious about vetting judges better and making sure we have people who not only <clears throat> have the credentials, I mean, that's easy enough to find, and people who say they only believe in saying what the law is, not what it should be, but how do we know they have courage? How do you vet people for courage? Mm. And that has been the missing element. And now there are actually ways to do that. There are groups that focus on judicial integrity and they will ex ante before that person is nominated or while they're nominated, ask them difficult questions. You know, like tell me a time about when your back was up against the wall and you mm -hmm. had to risk yourself professionally to do the right thing. And give me a few witnesses to prove that really happened. You know, these are things you can do whenever you're trying to, you know, in your professional community, um, when there's such a large legal community that's the conservative and libertarian, you know, over decades, we get to know each other, right? And these are the kinds of things that you learn about people when you have organizations that are focused on the rule of law. Who shows up to that? Who's a member of that? Who participates in that? Who's showing up to do the pro bono work? Who's showing up to do the, I don't know, voter integrity and, and you know, election integrity work? Because right now it's a pretty lonely place, I'm telling you. <laughs> who know what's right, don't have the courage or they're, they're worried, you know, they got kids to feed and mortgages to pay. They're afraid to show up to the plate because they could be punished um, and, and probably would be professionally or be, they'll be doxxed or whatever. Um, so, but, but you learn a lot about people in moments like these. And so we, I think now have a, a, a real community, a legal community that can get to know these people so that we don't nominate, you know, a, a justice suitor up in some Northeastern state who barely has a record and say, oh, that's great because the, the Democrats won't have anything to object to. He has so little record. Well, mm -hmm. we have so little to go off of to know what that person will do at key moments. So I think we're better at it now because we're just a better, there's just a better community around to see and learn who's who. Well, uh, if that question were to be turned around on you, I think you're probably living that answer right now in terms of asking, you know, about a time when your back was up against the wall and uh, you were challenged about whether or not to just go along to get along or do something that uh, you felt was the right thing to do, even at personal or professional cost. So I'd say, as we talked about at the outset, uh, I, I don't. I don't know. I mean, what this has cost you? Certainly, probably many sleepless nights and complaints <laughs> from your family, but also um, what 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 else? It's 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 you know you'd had you had to put you can do it everything. You just can't do everything at the same time. And the choice to do one thing is the choice not to do another thing. So. Um, so, but what would you say, we got a question here from Vicki and, and maybe it's a good one to, uh, to, to end on. Um, Jackie, what would you say to young people who are watching this election and feeling um, disenfranchised or discouraged? I would say times like this in history are not uncommon. And 
You have to never be discouraged, never give up, never give over your country to people who would like to steal it and destroy its institutions, no matter how bad things are, just like now, the people in Georgia. Should they be voting? Because after all, we know that the system has some serious flaws. And then again, the wrong candidate might be you know, named the winner. Yes, they should vote. And yes, they should go to their representatives, the kids too. And it's, it's great to learn this when you're young and say, hey, my future matters. This is my country. This is my republic. This is my rule of law. And I expect you, representative, to get up there and defend it. I expect you to fight. I expect you to vote for reforms that are going to secure the system and make sure this never happens again. The country's been through far worse, many times, many times. And it's just for people like us to do the right thing and go all the way, go to the mat, demand that things be made better, demand a better outcome. You, you drive past Arlington National Cemetery and you see just a fraction of the people who have laid down their lives to give us the system. No one's gonna take it away from us. You don't give up, you never give up. You teach your kids that. Um, so, I mean, I'm certainly uh, emboldened. I'm actually optimistic. I'm actually thankful that the country sees what's happening, that, that the polls show, people understand it, they get it, they're not fooled. Um, and the truth is getting out there. So, you know, we, these are the times that you actually grow as a culture and as a, as a movement. So we have to rise to this occasion and never be discouraged. That is the way you ensure the wrong side wins. So don't be discouraged. All right, well, Alice Society Gremlins, make sure that you time-coded that because that is our, our video meme that we are going to play again and again and again. And there are not enough uh, time left for me to be able to thank you, express my, my gratitude for, um, for your time today, Jackie. We have someone else who just popped on the screen here who wants to express his gratitude. And that is your friend and friend of the Outlet Society, Bud Brigham. Oh, yeah. who says uh, he's grateful for Jackie's courage and demonstrated extreme unwavering commitment to the rule of law, justice, and freedom. So thank, thank you, Bud. You Bud. Bud is a national treasure. If you don't know Bud, he is behind so many great things that happens in the country. I don't know where we'd be without him. Um, so Bud, thank you so much. Absolutely for everything that you do. Don't think we don't notice. And also uh, to you all at the Alice Society, seriously, I'm so thankful um, that you exist, that you're telling the truth, that you're courageous and not afraid, uh, and for the group you've assembled. I have lots of friends who are members there. And so um, thank you for the opportunity. Really appreciate it. Thank you, ja Jackie. Where is the best place? Um, follow you on Parlor uh, on... Yes. Tell us your socials and where you like to spend most of your time. Uh, and then, of course, where, if people have access to The Blaze, where we can get your, your podcast and your radio show. Okay, so you can find me on Parlor at Jackie Daily Show. Just Jackie with no E. Daily is an everyday. I'm also on Twitter, but after the election, I promised myself I'm transferring over to Parlor. Um, you can always find me for free podcast on iHeartRadio, iTunes. Spotify, Stitcher, Spreaker, and most other places quality podcasts are found. You can find me on theblaze.com. Um, and if you're a Texan, you can find me on the dial out in the oil patch of West Texas on KWEL. That is 107.1 FM, right after the Sean Hannity Show. 
Spectacular. We are dropping all of those into the comment section and uh, we will make sure that uh, we broadcast this far and wide and loud and proud. Uh, you know, I think it's so important. Thank you, not just for the work that you're doing, but for being a courageous person in all areas of life. We need to not shrink. We need to not shirk. We need to not shrug. We need to not provide the sanction of the victim, um, but we, we need to, to stand and be counted. So thank you so much, Jackie. I, I'm deeply appreciative and grateful for you. And I'm wishing you and uh, everyone in your family a very, very Merry Christmas and Happy Holiday. Thank you. Thank you and Happy Holidays to you all as well. Take care. Thanks everyone. Thanks for joining us. And join us next week, Michael Shermer from The Skeptic. Take care.